0: When Philadelphia native Cliff Banks was 19 years old, he traveled to New York City to take a connecting train to Michigan to start a new job and a new life. But he got the fright of his life as he hailed a cab from Penn Station to Grand Central Station.
1: Before I got into the cab, two guys came up and asked me for, you know, or asked if they could help. And I said, no thanks, I've got it. And next thing I know, I was up against the cab with a knife to my throat and they demanded my wallet and anything else valuable that I had and took off running.
0: Although broke and in shock over what had happened to him, banks somehow found a way to make it to Dearborn. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. That same resourcefulness that allowed banks to recover from the armed robbery got him into the automotive industry where he fulfilled his passion for trade journalism. Joining me now is Cliff Banks, founder and president of The Banks Report, the most influential newsletter covering the automotive retail space. Cliff, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Chitra. It's great to be here.
0: So tell us what happened and how you got mugged in New York. I mean, this was back in the 1990s when when the Big Apple wasn't quite so sanitized, was it?
1: No, no, not at all. In fact, it did look a lot different back then. It was uh, 1990, early, uh, it was mid-March, I guess. And uh, at the time, there wasn't a train that went directly from Philadelphia to Dearborn, Michigan. So I had to go to New York and get off at one Penn Station, and then take a cab to Grand Central to grab the train to Dearborn, and uh, coming out of Penn Station and getting into the cab, before I got into the cab, two guys came up and asked me for, you know, or asked if they could help, and I said, no thanks, I've got it, and next thing I know, I was up against the cab with a knife to my throat, and they demanded my wallet and anything else valuable that I had, and took off running. I actually chased the guy that took the wallet and he, I caught up to him and he turned around with the knife and slashed at me and I just, I backed off and told him to keep it. I went back to the cab thinking for sure he would be gone with all my luggage. And actually it wasn't, he was staying there with a few cops around them, uh, but there wasn't anything to do that, that they could do. So the, the cab driver very graciously offered to take me to uh, Grand Central. I had my tickets in my bag, so I was able to get on the train. But I got, you know, but honestly, for a while there, I thought I was gonna be homeless in New York. I, it was, uh, you know, the four cell phones, uh, I had absolutely no money on me, and had no idea how I would uh, contact anyone other than probably call and collect. But it was was a a momentary panic, I guess you could say.
0: So, how did you end up in uh, getting to Michigan?
1: Well, I was able to get on the train and, uh, you know, the overnight, it was an overnight ride. I showed up at the Dearborn station and my friend who had secured the job for me was there picking me up. And, you know, I told him, listen, just go ahead and buy me a ticket. I'll go back to Philadelphia, I'll get my old jobs back, and uh, I'll just send you the money for the ticket. And he said, no, Cliff, just stay, you know, stay, you can stay in my basement and uh, we'll figure it out. So the job, you know, we started where work, I started working, uh, I think yeah, a couple days later, it was loading cars on the trains. I had a beg for rides and hitchhike some to get to, to the job and get home. But, uh, you know, I worked double shifts, worked as hard as I could, um, worked seven days a week and uh was able to after a couple months have enough money saved to buy a car and finally move out of uh, the basement
0: so what was your next job
1: the house that i I was renting with some other guys uh, the landlord was a uh, cfo at a sales training company agency in dearborn michigan and they did new product launches for Automakers and dealers. Uh, name of it was Jackson Dawson Communications, and through through uh, knowing knowing this gentleman, I was able to get a job there uh, in September of 1990 as a courier, and was able to work my way up. It was a small enough firm, so you had to get your hands dirty doing everything. It was a great experience. A lot of uh, a lot of hours, hard work. But uh, but it was every every day was different. There was a lot of travel involved, um, but so I was able to work in logistics. I was able to help write proposals and training materials, uh, planning meetings. Uh, I worked as the uh, executive assistant to the owner founder. So it was it was uh, it was a college education uh, on steroids.
0: But you didn't really have a college degree at the time, right? You were trying.
1: Uh, I Yeah, I did not. No, you know, I tried a couple times, never just the, the timing didn't work, work out. Uh, you know, when I had left Philadelphia, I was taking care of my grandparents, who were both pretty sick. So college wasn't really in the cards there. Um, but uh, but it was such a great experience, you know, with Jackson us. I didn't really, I guess I, you know, even though I tried college a couple times, uh, and it wasn't until 95, 1995, summer of 1995 that I decided to leave Jackson Dawson. Um, one, you know, I was dating my wife at the time. It was, uh, wasn't a job conducive at my, at that age for a relationship, dating relationship, let alone a marriage relationship. So I left, I thought I was going to teach history. That's what I, really wanted to do. I was coaching high school sports, decided that I, I was able to get a job managing a warehouse, a distribution center, midnight shift. And, you know, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, 25 years old, I was managing 20-some people, truck drivers, warehouse workers, uh, and going to school during the day. And it just, the school thing, again, wasn't, wasn't a top priority, so I never really finished. But uh, over time, I became a, uh, you know, I decided uh, I, I knew I had to figure out what I wanted to do for my for the rest of my life. I wasn't working in a warehouse, decided it wasn't going to be teaching history, and I thought I could write, so I decided to go for journalism.
0: So how did you end up in journalism? What was your first big break?
1: After the warehouse, I was working in a small ad agency, just doing some copywriting and proofreading of ads, and that, that was just a just kind of a short-term thing to get something on the resume. But uh, Wards Auto, which is a publishing automotive news type publishing company here in Detroit, it's, it's probably 100 years old or close to it now. They had a uh, researching position open, and I I sent my resume in for that. Uh, they interviewed me three times. I thought it was a way to get my foot in the door. They had a, you know, some magazines and newsletters. Uh, this was before the era of websites, so that wasn't really a focus uh, for them at the time, digital publications. But uh, they told me after the third interview they, they weren't going to hire anyone for that researching position, but they liked me. And it seemed like we had hit it off well, so they, they offered me a position in sale, uh, as a sales assistant and as an assistant office manager. So last interview, everything's set. It's a done deal everything's good. And the publisher, you know, I'm sitting at a conference room table, publisher, the president of the company, the sales director, and, and uh, the HR director, Every, like I said, er, everything was good. We're winding down and the publisher decided to ask me the throwaway question, where do you see yourself in five years? And without thinking, I said, well, I plan on being on the editorial side. And he, they, they literally laughed at me. I I, I mean, there's some, Thirty-year-old kid without any writing uh, classes, no journalism background, nothing, and they basically said, "Listen, Cliff, you got—you know—we've got a crack news organization here. College grads some, from some of the top schools, journalism schools in the country. You know, we're hiring you for the sales track. That's where you're going to be." And I said, "Sure, sure thing. I, I'll do my time."
0: So then, what happened? You—you you did get a break eventually.
1: I did. Yeah, I did. I, three months later, I took the editor, um, the editorial director for the Ward's Auto World, Drew Winter. I took him to lunch and uh, explained to him what I wanted to do. And I fully expected him to say, look, Cliff, go, go back, get some classes, get some journalism classes. You know, the company will pay for it and come back and talk to us in a couple of years. But he didn't. He said, hey, we've got some small, you know, we got some We've got a couple stories we need help on. And if your boss says okay and it doesn't interfere with your current work, yeah, we'll see if you can uh, string a few words together. Uh, My first story that they sent me on was about the Ford Thinkmobile, which was an electric uh, one of Ford's earlier electric vehicle initiatives. They published a story. And I'll never forget that feeling of seeing that uh, that story in both the magazine and the newsletter. And then and from then on, I started helping out on the dealer publication that they had. And uh, within six years, I was editorial director.
0: So how did that publisher who had laughed at you react when he learned that one of his editors had given you a writing job?
1: He was pretty upset. Uh, Somewhat. I mean, I, you know, it was it was kind of an interesting conversation. You know, it was, you went around, you went behind my back, you went around me. I don't appreciate that. But later on, he would tell people I was one of the best hires he had ever made.
0: And was it hard transitioning to journalism uh, and getting edited and all
1: that? Chitra was interesting because the team there was so good. And I don't know if humble's the right word, but... They weren't prima donnas. I mean, they, they were competitive, but they were willing to help. And you know, we had a great a great editor who also served as a copy editor. And and I remember the first time she came in to my office to talk to me about a feature I had written and it was marked up in red. <laughs> I and remember that I feeling. Mean, it, was, <laughs> yeah, it was worse than any English teacher I've ever had in my life. I mean and, and she was a little bit nervous, but she said, Listen, you know I, I don't want to slam slam you or discourage you but you know if you want my help you know this is the way it's gonna be but she said you know if you don't want it I'm out and I I told her Barbara it hit me hard I, I want you looking at everything I do because I understood I mean she, she was she was a pro and uh, I learned a ton that, from 19, I'll tell you every I think for the first three years they rewrote every single lead. <laughs> Every story I ever wrote, it took me a while. I think I was a slow learner, at some, but but I, I I was a good reporter, I guess. I, mean, I was able to get people to talk to me, and and I could see a good story, and I I could write fairly well. And it took a while to learn how to write journalistically, but like I said, uh, I, I remember that first story. They didn't rewrite the lead, and it was one of those moments that aha, the, you know, maybe I'm getting this. Maybe I can actually do this job.
0: Was there ever a crisis moment through these years where you were wondering how you could possibly think you were going to pull this off and uh, this trajectory in your life?
1: Prior to getting the job or uh, leaning at Ward's, and I was laid off eight weeks before my our first son was born, and that was a you know, that was one of those moments where you know you, you're just thinking, "Wow, how am I going to do this?" Once I got into wards and started doing the job, I, you know, I, I joke, but I'm really not joking. I say, you know, I was cocky enough to think I could get a job in journalism without getting the college degree or the journalism degree or the writing degree. But like Jackson Dawson was a college degree, I can tell you working at wards was, was a, an absolute master's degree in, in journalism.
0: So how did you wind up starting the Banks report?
1: Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a... That also was a process. Uh, it wasn't any one moment. Wards had a newsletter called Wards Automotive Reports, automaker focus, that published every week. Friday afternoon was a print newsletter. You know, It was deadline-focused. And, and I thought, uh, as I was working on the dealer publications, and I, I could see the other publications from a competitive perspective, you know, within the industry, Automotive News, and there were several others, and no one was covering that part of the industry from an investor perspective, and uh, and I thought uh, there, was, there was a place for that. Um, now, I thought about it, doing it with Wards, and I was changing a lot of the editorial coverage towards that, but we were, at the time, owned by a private equity firm, and 2008, 2009, we had the huge recession, in the just a huge crash with the automotive industry and at the same time to you you lived through that whole life of, of a journalist in which at the time you know the layoffs were just crazy the carnage from a media perspective was pretty intense at the time I had a pretty good salary uh, by 2009 I, I had three or four promotions and it was in a pretty good place there but again we were owned by a private equity firm out of New York. We're part of a bigger publishing company and I could see where the handwriting on the wall that with my salary I probably would be targeted for a layoff at some point. And being age 39 I didn't want to leave my hands, you know, leave my career in the hands of someone in New York who had no clue what I was doing. So I, uh, I took a job with a smaller uh, with a competitor uh, solely owned uh, thinking we could kind of launch this thing together that didn't work and uh, from there I did a little bit of consulting for a couple of years started a, a conference with someone out of Miami Florida and then I had a friend of mine um, Joe Herman who was a, a longtime entity the executive in the automotive retail space was this guy one of the brains behind the first public dealer group launch IPO back in the uh, mid nineties was active in the investment community in New York and on wall street and just, just a really good guy. And, and in 2013, early 2013, he called me, I was in Vegas at a conference and he said, Cliff, I'm coming into Vegas. Don't leave before I get there. I want to talk to you. We had dinner two years earlier. And San Francisco on Fisherman's Wharf, and I had shared with him this vision I had for the banks report. And then he got to Vegas, we sat down, and he said, "Cliff, you have a, a business plan." I told him I did, and he said, "Email to me from the plane." I was actually leaving on the red eye that night. I did. He called me. Uh, he he called me the next morning after I landed, and said, "Hey, we're. Uh, I want to participate. I want to finance this thing and be your partner." He was looking at his retirement planning for his retirement so that was early 2013 we got this thing launched august of 2013 and in fact it was on the beach in north carolina when i hit launch we were on vacation and i hit the launch button on my phone and went live december i get yeah it was december joe was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and for the next 10 months that was you know, that was the focus, and he uh, he ended up uh, passing away in October.
0: And you had other crises, too, with your website. And-
1: uh, oh, yeah, we did. Yes, yes, we did. At July 4th, early in the morning, I got an email from our web host, the company that was hosting our website and managing the website, uh, saying uh, informing me that they were out of business and bankrupt. And so uh, the next month, I spent in my office, my wife says she never saw me. I think I slept eight, I mean, literally, I I don't know how often I came out of my office. It was round the clock writing, reposting, building a brand new website from scratch with a person out of Miami who I had never met. we were doing this over the phone. And it it was a pretty intense month, Um, reposting content, writing, Informing subscribers what had happened um, so
0: so with through sheer grit and perseverance, I mean you survived you know even though your mentor passed away and the bank's report survived and today you're one of the most influential, if not the most influential a newsletter covering the retail auto space, and you're covering an unprecedented story, you know the covid nineteen and how it has impacted the world and the auto industry. have you ever seen through your decades of reporting on the industry a comparable time like this
1: no no and i i don't think anyone has uh, you know uh, you know the last pandemic you know was the spanish flu in 1918 that was 100 years ago so you know we we've we've seen challenges certainly through world war 2 world you know, uh, there have been recessions, oil embargoes of the 70s and then the Great Recession in 08, 09, but nothing like this. I mean, we were, listen, We the last five years, the industry has had, uh, has sold over 17 million new cars a year for the last five years. Another 40 million used cars on top of that per year. So so we're looking at, you know, 55, 57 million vehicle sales a year for the last five years and we were probably going to do 16.8 new 16.8 million new this year still very healthy and we so look industry is zooming down the highway 80 miles an hour and then bam it we, we hit a brick wall everything stopped in march everything uh car sales plummeted uh, all travel plummeted so it's impacted the entire industry, the entire transportation industry, but automotive, uh, you know, certainly is is uh, feeling the pain.
0: And you know, the automotive industry has long been kind of the bellwether industry of the the nation, the pulse of the economy, right? So, when that kind of falls apart, what happens? There's probably this cascading effect.
1: Yeah, there has been. I mean, I, you know, I think in March. We the last week in March was the first time since World War II that a new vehicle had not been built in the U.S. The the effects of that just start spiraling down with the states shut down. More than half of the states with you know shelter in place or stay at home orders. Uh, there were several states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, areas in California, Kentucky, that were not allowed to even sell cars online. What what's going on right now is the dealers have shifted from showroom sales to online sales and have ramped up their operations pretty pretty quickly to to manage that. So the good, a little bit of good news, or I, if there is good news out of this, is that April sales are not down as much as we had projected. We were projecting them to be down 80, 90%. It's actually probably between 40 and 50% right now, um, partially because you know the dealers have ramped up on the on their uh, ability to sell over the internet, the uh, the challenge. I mean, like, like you said, the automotive is really one of the engines, main engines that drive the U.S. economy, because you have the big factories, you have suppliers, five or six suppliers per factory, um, and you have all of the other businesses within you know, that area that a factory is located, you have dealerships, the 18,000 dealerships employ close to 1.1 million people in the U S and I would say probably half of those are laid off now. uh, If not more. Uh, uh, And then you have the rental agencies, you have all of the other industries that surround the automotive space from gasoline, So all the taxes, gas taxes, none of that's flowing, uh, going through, uh, going into the states. Uh, So, so there's, there's going to be a lot of pain out of this.
0: What about the used car oversupply?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're we're watching it very closely. Uh, The used cars, the way it works, I mean, cars come back from lease, and this year there's four million, over four million vehicles that are going to come off-lease and come back into the system. And so the banks that actually own the paper or that own those vehicles are going to have to somehow get get rid of, sell those vehicles. Problem is people aren't buying right now. Uh, the auctions are piling up with vehicles. The rental companies have you know been trying to sell their vehicles. So we have a situation now where everyone's trying to offload their used vehicle inventory but the typical buyers which are the dealers aren't buying the cars because they they don't want to get into a situation where in 2 to 3 weeks they're sitting on you know 10 million dollars worth of used vehicle inventory that all of a sudden is now 6 million dollars so everyone's trying to protect their interests which they need to be so we've got uh, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of things to work through over the next several months.
0: The the used car oversupply sort of reminds me of the recent collapse in the oil industry where they didn't know where to put all the oil, right? They've got so much oil, they're trying to find places to store it. And it seems like that's what's happening with the, with the used car dealers.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of parking. But I will tell you, even here in Dearborn, uh, one of the car rental agencies has been parking cars in school parking lots. If you drive past, if you happen to drive past a an area where there's a bunch of cars parked, that's probably what it is, is dealers or automakers or banks that are trying to find places to store their vehicles.
0: And with fewer people commuting, does that impact the industry as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what the long-term impact will be if people are going to be commuting back to work at some point, going back to offices or working more from home. It certainly sounds to me from all of the CEOs and business people owners that I talk to that they're looking for ways to to get out of their leases or reduce their office space and have more people working from home. So that absolutely will because the less people are driving, you know, the less miles that you're putting on your vehicle, it's it impacts service revenue. In fact, I did a story a couple of weeks ago a report on collision accidents in New York uh, the month of March number of accidents plummeted by 7,000 from March, 2019. Uh, so there's a great impact there. People aren't getting injured. You were seeing less people die in less fatalities from motor vehicle accidents, but the subsequent impact on businesses such as collision and repair shops, body shops, paint, glass repair insurance, it uh, it there's a cascading negative effect from that.
0: And what about the oil crisis? How does that have a role to play?
1: Well, certainly some of the larger markets, I think, in Texas that that are dependent on oil are are going to be impacted because of the layoffs uh, and people aren't working. Um, the other uh, the other thing that we're seeing with gas prices so cheap, and in some states it's below a dollar. I'm seeing reports of 69 cents a gallon in places like Alabama, Arkansas, and others. And I think here in Detroit, it's it's been as low as dollar 30. The, uh, uh, I think the impact, the long term impact on automaker strategies will be interesting to watch because over the last couple of years, companies like General Motors, Ford, Volkswagen, and others have been putting a lot of money, we're talking billions of dollars of investment into developing their electric vehicle strategies. The problem is that. Tesla. If you take Tesla out of the equation, the American consumer is not shown much interest at all in buying electric vehicles. Nevertheless, the automakers have been pushing and and working hard at developing vehicles that that customers will want to buy. However, now with oil prices so low and I think with huge cash issues, that all of the automakers will be Facing in the next few months, at some point they're going to have to make decisions on where they're going to put their money, and they're going to they're going to have to put that investment money into developing products that the consumer has historically bought. SUVs, trucks. I mean, the F one hundred and fifty from Ford is the best selling vehicle and has been the best selling vehicle in the U.S. for years, decades, uh, and has shown no sign of of relinquishing that crown you know certainly the Dodge Ram the Chevy Silverado and then we have the just SUVs that uh, that customers have have been buying the last several years so we'll see what the, what the impact the longer this continues the longer that you know we, we are sheltered in place or so the longer we're dealing with with the impact from the virus I think it's it's going to delay some of those uh, electric vehicle initiatives and even some of the other future more futuristic technologies, such as autonomous vehicle or even connected vehicle investment they're all saying otherwise the automakers are but really when push comes to shove chitra the fact is they're going to have to make some hard calls in the next you know several months
0: so overall looking at this huge impact on the industry how would you kind of sum it up i mean how would you describe it seeing what you're seeing every day the news pouring into your newsletter
1: yeah yeah wow it's hard because i think one it really is a matter of survival i think everyone's trying to figure out how to survive from a business perspective and then you have that dynamic of trying to protect yourself physically also from getting the virus and i you know i'm there's so many different opinions out there as to how bad it is, but but the fact is, you know, our our family and we've known several people are who have either lost family members or who have died from this virus, and one of the areas that's been hard hit. So there is that that mentality. It's not just a surviving business wise, but when you throw everything together, it's it. Uh, on top of the uncertainty of how long this is going to progress makes business planning hard. And I think, uh, but, but I will tell you that on the automotive side, the dealers and the automakers are absolutely resilient. They adapt, they've, you know, they, they've met every challenge and I don't want to get corny here, but the fact is they have met every challenge for a hundred years. And and are meeting this challenge too. Um, some better than others, but but uh, it's it's going to be one for the history books.
0: Well, it seems like you are in a really unique place to cover this, from all the experience you've gained from the moment you started loading cars onto trains and rail yards, and then talking to dealers and CEOs and financiers and investors. I mean, it, it you probably you know all the work you've done has probably. Put you in a unique place to cover this unprecedented challenge to the auto industry.
1: Well, you know, I've, I guess now it's we're going on thirty years, so I guess there, there's a perspective of history also. But yeah, it is, it is, it is a unique spot, and it's it's a great spot to be in because I feel like you know I'm getting a front seat to history and you know while living it.
0: Looking back at that young man who was hitchhiking to the rail yards because uh, you know, he was too broke to buy a car and making money loading those cars onto trains, or that young man who stood outside Penn Station getting robbed at knife point, what would you say to that young man about the lessons you have learned about adversity?
1: I guess stick with it. Uh, I probably would tell them to go to school, get, get the college degree, <laughs> to be honest with you. Don't be afraid to take risks stick with it, uh, and and, uh, and things tend to work out.
0: Cliff, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so great having you on the podcast and for sharing your story and all the insights into how COVID-19 is affecting the auto industry.
1: Chitra, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Cliff Banks is founder and president of The Banks Report, the most influential newsletter covering the auto retail space. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Core, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.